0: From 1979 to today.
1: This is episode 2.42, The Next Tragedy, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm making sure that Nina stays at least six feet away from any Gundam spoilers.
0: And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and for the umpteenth time... Wishing I knew more about the technical side of animation so that I could provide better analysis than what a cool fight. It looked good and was exciting. (laughs) Almost made Tom do a spit take. (laughs) All over our expensive equipment. Oh no. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 292 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all. And special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Amy S, Ryan B., Eldritch B, and, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Courtney K. If you'd like to support the podcast but can't afford to spend money right now, write us a review. Reviews improve the rate at which we show up in searches on various podcast apps and sites, and help us reach new listeners. This week in Dispatches from New York, I can't believe I need to say this, but the US Postal Service is important and should continue to exist. If it's not important to you personally, let me say that we, in fact, depend on it. We could not offer the physical patron benefits without it, and without subscriptions and patrons, we couldn't keep making this thing that you enjoy. This is true for countless independent artists, musicians, and craftspeople, so contact your congresspeople, buy some stamps. There are so many tragedies, large and small, grabbing at our attention right now. And many of us, myself included, barely have the energy for things we need to do to maintain some semblance of order in our own daily lives. But this week, the stuff about the post office really got to me. I've heard valid complaints about the post office, but it's always seemed rather miraculous to me that I can put a stamp on a card and put it in a box, and in a couple of days it will arrive across the country. So that's where my little bits of extra energy went this week. That and pre-ordering a t-shirt from an indie musician I enjoy. If the post office isn't your thing, pick something, anything, to support a bit. And it doesn't have to be monetary support, since money is tight right now. Tell an artist you love their work, write a review, recommend to friends, grab any little bits of energy and put them to work out in the world. And as always, keep well and be excellent to each other.
1: This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 41, Awakening. After the recap and our talk back, we have a conversation with MSB's neuropsychology consultant, Dr. Shar of Dr. Charmander Gaming. But first, let's tune in to the Titans News Network.
0: A colony on Side 2 cluster narrowly escaped disaster this week when a malfunction in the colony's air circulation systems resulted in a dangerous overconcentration of atmospheric gases. Thankfully, the problem was detected and a special Titans Emergency Response Unit based at the Gate of Zedan Space Fortress sprang into action, initiating emergency ventilation of the cylinder that allowed the excess gases to escape harmlessly into space, preventing catastrophic total colony collapse. AUG terrorists, attempting to interfere with this life-saving humanitarian mission, were driven off in disarray. In other news, everything is fine at TNN Tower in New York City, where I definitely still am. There is no cause for alarm.
2: Adventure. Welcome back to the AUG Broadcasting Channel, a meticulously curated version of the truth, delivered in a soft, comforting voice. The standoff at TNN Tower in New York City between the network's leadership and its large staff of unpaid interns has grown increasingly tense as the strike now enters its third week. While there were early indications that a negotiated settlement would be possible, talks broke down after the network leadership team, represented principally by Chief Operations Lieutenant Ronfellow and Chief Negotiator Lieutenant Nina's dossier, rejected a demand from the interns that they be allowed to choose the toppings at the pizza party. The network's counteroffer, two two two-litre bottles of whichever soda was on sale, failed to bridge the widening gap between labor and management. Following the breakdown in negotiations, eyewitnesses reported that high-ranking network officials were emptying TNN Tower of its broadcast infrastructure, presumably in order to relocate to a secure and undisclosed location somewhere outside the picket lines. That's all for now. After the break, we'll have an exclusive report on the Melanie and Martha Carbine Foundation's new initiative to improve gender equality by developing mobile suits and other weapons designed exclusively for women. Don't skip Ms. Methus when we return.
1: Take a gander at our propaganda, little loyalist reading out. (sighs) Hello,
3: valued human resource. And welcome to your Ayuger Automated Therapy app, powered by the same advanced machine learning algorithms in the popular Haro brand parent replacement robot. Freedom fighting is hard work, and sometimes it can really get you feeling down. But don't worry, the Ayugur Automated Therapy app is here to remove those negative feelings and help resolve whatever personal issues are reducing your combat effectiveness. First, please select an option from the menu on your screen now to help me understand the nature of your bad feelings. You have selected sad, angry, and confused. I'm sorry, you can only feel one emotion at a time. Please select an option from the menu on your screen now to help me understand the nature of your bad feelings. You have selected angry. That's great. Anger is a very useful emotion for a valuable human resource like yourself. Let's see if we can channel that anger into a productively destructive form of space murder. Next, please select the reason for your anger from the menu on your screen now. You have selected My friend who I thought was dead turned out to be alive, but they betrayed Ayug and joined the enemy for reasons I don't understand. Wow, that sounds tough. Let me use my advanced machine learning processes to calculate a solution for you. All done. In order to feel better, you should kill the traitor when you have the chance. Good luck! Thank you for using this Ayuger automated therapy app. In order to ensure the smooth operation of your unit, a copy of this therapy session has been sent to your commanding officer,
1: Lieutenant Emma Sheen.
3: She'll be contacting you shortly.
1: And now the recap for Awakening.
0: On their way to a meeting, Camille and Fa get a call over the ship's intercom. Shinta and Koum, who are supposed to be keeping an eye on Rosamia while she has her checkup in Dr. Hassan's office, need help. Rosamia is going to be dissected! Arriving at the office, they see that the panic was unfounded, although Rosami is clearly very afraid, and bites the doctor when he tries to get her to lay down on the examination table. Camille calms her and between his insistence that she has to have the checkup if she wants to stay on the Argama, and Shintankum assuring her that if she behaves the doctor will give her candy, she finally complies. The mobile suits are undergoing maintenance, and while they assist Astonaji, Shar checks with Camille. Do they have any information about Rosamia? The doctor's work has only just begun, but so far she seems normal, to Camille's great relief. Bashar warns Camille that she can be a good girl and still not be on their side. Aboard the Dogos Gear, Basque gives Rekoa new orders. She is to lead a team in gassing a nearby colony. When she tries to talk her way out of the assignment, Basque punches Rekoa in the face, reminding her she's not special and she still needs to prove her loyalty to the Titans. After she is dismissed, Rekoa stands in the hallway a moment to collect herself and wonders why Sirocco feels the need to test her like this. With mobile suit maintenance completed, the Argama pilots are on standby. Still, Camille ducks out to check on Rosamia. Her initial checkup is complete, and she's standing around shirtless, still childlike in her lack of embarrassment or self-consciousness. The doctor tells Camille that so far, nothing is wrong with her. But he still needs to test for drugs, cellular abnormalities, and hypnotism. Regardless, Camille shouldn't worry. It's all under control. Rekoa and her team are just outside the target colony when some clumsy flying by one of the Hizaks sets off the laser security system. Almost relieved, Rekoa thinks that if the Argama comes, she won't have to go through with the mission after all. The Argama receives the emergency transmission and prepares its mobile suits. In the meantime, Shintankum have taken Rosamia to the lounge for snacks snack. A klaxon goes off, and Rosamia is suddenly clutching her head. "'I... I hate that sound,' she stutters. "'But it's just the warning that the mobile suits are launching,' the children tell her. "'Besides, when Camille launches in the Zeta, it looks really cool!' Staring down at the table, she says to herself, "'Camille... Zeta... there's something I'm supposed to do?' "'I can pilot mobile suits!' She vacillates, remembering Camille's admonition to stay on the ship. But Shinta and Koum think that this is the perfect opportunity to help Camille, and she gives way, going with them to the hangar. Sitting in the cockpit of the Hyakushiki, Shaw receives a call from Dr. Hassan. The blood tests show drugs in Rosamia's system. She is probably a cyber new type. And to top it off, the doctor cannot find her. Shar stays behind to look for her, and the rest of the team launch without him, Emma now leading the mission. Dr. Hassan and Shar search the hangar for Rosamia, but Shinta and Kum provide a distraction and she boards an empty Nemo, locking the cockpit from the inside. Despite her lack of experience with the Nemo, she easily manages to hotwire the mobile suit. In an effort to prevent her from launching, they disable the lift but she simply uses the controls to climb the suit up onto the launch deck. She takes off after Camille, with Char following right behind her. And although he fires, trying to disable her mobile suit, she dodges adroitly out of the way. This is all the confirmation Char needs, that the tests were accurate. She must be a cyber-new type. Armed with only Nemo's, the besieged colony's defenses are quickly wiped out, leaving Requa sweating. Is that it? And the Argama still hasn't arrived? Preparations are complete, the gas ready to be deployed. After a brief hesitation, Rekoa gives the order. In the Zeta, Camille suddenly feels ill, as faces and cries spiral through his mind. Though not as clearly, Fa feels it too. When they arrive at the colony, Camille fights his way through enemy suits, but can tell it's already too late. After what she's done, Brekoa is all too ready now to fight Camille. If you're this slow in battle, you'll never defeat Sirocco, she taunts. Camille shouts back that he will never understand her and never forgive her. Rosamia arrives, jolting Camille out of his usual focus, but she is clearly a skilled combatant, gleefully destroying the hyzaks that were fighting Camille. Eager to get Rosamia somewhere safe, he takes her inside the colony, explaining that she's to wait there until he comes back for her. Seeing a small child laying dead in the street, the childlike Rosamia runs over and tries to wake him. Two Hizaks enter the colony and begin to bomb the city, Camille rushing back to the Zeta to fight them off. Rosamia falls to her knees, muttering that the sky is falling. By the time Camille returns, the childlike Rosamia is gone, and Lieutenant Rosamia of the Titans is back. Zeta Gundam will bring the sky down. You are my enemy. My orders are to eliminate you, she snarls at him, as he desperately calls out to her and dodges her attacks. She chases after him, and when Emma comes to his aid, he tries to call her off. He doesn't want Rosamia harmed. Mission complete, Rekkoa is ordered to return, and Rosamia receives orders to go with her. They leave, and while most of the Argama crew seem relieved, by Rosamia's departure. Camille pounds the controls of the Zeta, sobbing into the panel.
1: Rosamia, or Rosami, is the linchpin of this episode. All of the stories kind of revolve around her or touch on her, or deal with the way that she impacts the people around her. And so you would expect that during the talkback, we would spend quite a bit of time talking about Rosamia. We are not going to, because this week we have a conversation with our friend and our neuropsychology consultant, Dr. Shar, who is going to talk to us during the research section about Rosamia. So we'll save all of our thoughts on her for that. I want to say that what stands out to me the most about this episode is the uh, extremely high quality of the animation. Now, what actually stands out most about this episode is the sheer horror of what happens in it.
0: It does have really fantastic animation, though. The fight scene is incredible. I have trouble articulating just why the fight scene is so great, but it's really good.
1: There is a kinetic... Not exactly elegant, although it sometimes it does become elegant, but there's a very um, physical embodied element to the way the mobile suits and even the people move throughout this episode. We see a lot of little gestures. We see a lot of uh, exaggerated interactions between people, physical ones, like when Fa grabs Camille by the hair to drag him out of the room. Um, but we see this with the mobile suits too, and we see them moving more like real human, physical, athletic bodies than we are accustomed to seeing.
0: It's very dramatic. It's very exciting.
1: There's a bit when Rosamia is stealing the Nemo, uh, where she gets uh, locked because the elevator has been stopped. And then we see the Nemo like pushing itself up off of the hangar deck. And then it takes off without the catapult. And it kind of like its jets come on and it sort of skates left and right before taking off. There's a moment where the Masala sort of springs backward, but as it does so, its arms go out to the side, its feet come up, and its knees splay wide, kind of like you would see uh, like a ninja character jumping in a tokusatsu.
0: You brought up the human gestures as well. At the very beginning of the episode, we get a shot of Fa looking straight at the camera, which is very rare for this show. It's not a shot that they use very often. And this is followed by Camille lightly smacking his head into the side of the elevator. (laughs)
1: Just bonk.
0: Yeah. Uh, Like we said, a little gestures, but it makes it feel more natural. It makes it feel more real.
1: That head bonk is such a immediately recognizable, understandable, relatable gesture of just like total frustration.
0: Exasperation. I loved it. But then during the fight, we have this contrast between... The more human, one might say more natural, kinetic movement of the mobile suits. And more so than any other fight, to a degree that I I noticed it and I remarked on it, we get a lot of little dramatic speeches, for lack of a better way of describing it, between characters. Yes. Very, very melodramatic. (laughs) (laughs) And different from the way people normally talk, starkly different from... The way the show normally is. We've talked about how the show takes kind of a naturalistic approach. This felt very theatrical.
1: Yes. To me, it read like an old samurai movie. Lines like Rekoa saying, I am the one who is destined to defeat you, Shar."
0: Char saying what amounts to, let me solve all your problems by killing you then. <laughs>
1: It's like, I shall be the one to end your suffering.
0: Yeah. Well, or, or Camille to Reiko, I will never understand and I will never forgive you.
1: Yeah, it's very heightened. It's very exaggerated. And yet that feels appropriate at this moment in the story when things have gotten so big, so grand and terrible, when the scale of things has become millions of lives. If this had been the way people talked at the beginning of the show when the stakes were stealing a couple of mobile suits, it would have felt ridiculous. But now for these characters to talk as though they are almost like demigods bestriding the world with the fate of all of civilization and perhaps the entire human race in the balance, it's right. It's it's real. And at the same time, this episode also has a focus on very small, mundane difficulties in a way that I really liked. You're giving me a skeptical look, which is why I wrote a list of examples with bullet <laughs> points. Uh, we get several scenes of mobile suit maintenance. And I always like when they talk about the actual instruments they're using, like, give me that electrical impedance monitor. Um just the difficulty of piloting a mobile suit and doing formation flying when that one Titan's pilot, Peterson, like misjudges his vernier boost and falls off of the the gas canister. There's a whole bit where Quatro is just like trying to find Rosamia on the Argama and just like finding a person is difficult. Kum can't reach the intercom without standing on Shinta's shoulders. And then the little mundane detail of having to change which officer is in charge of the mission when Quattro isn't able to go out.
0: I suppose many of those things are not what I would consider mundane difficulties. (laughs) They're very much, you know, wartime aboard an active duty ship difficulties, (laughs) Uh, which I guess, you know, it's mundane for these characters at this juncture. Not so much that there are kids aboard <laughs> and that nothing is built for them. <laughs> Rosami's normal suit is way too big for her.
1: That's one of those things that I didn't really think of it watching the episode. But as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. That's why it looked weird on her.
0: Right. There's a scene where she's sitting in the cockpit of the Nemo where it really stands out that the shoulders are really broad, that it looks like the the neck is too high. So the helmet sits high. Mm hmm.
1: So as we're talking about all of this, I feel like I should shout out the director and storyboard artist for this episode, uh, Sugishima Kunihisa. Like his fellow Zeta episode director, Kawase Toshifumi, he will go on later to work on some of the uh, Beyblade property. But he also was the lead director on Speedgrapher, the original Strike Witches OVA that preceded the series. And most famously in the West, he will go on to be the director of Yu-Gi-Oh!, Yeah. Cutting his teeth on episodes of Zeta Gundam.
0: The moment that stands out to me the most in this episode vis-a-vis Camille and Rosamia and also everyone else on the ship uh, is when Camille is expressing to Char his great relief that it doesn't look like Rosamia is a cyber new type after all... That, oh, all of her tests are normal or they're doing them now, but everything looks normal so far. And he's so happy about this. And Char tells him, just because she's a good girl doesn't mean she's on our side. Which shows perhaps the best understanding (laughs) of any character in this whole show of the moral position that everyone is in.
1: Yeah. And it's just such a challenge to Camille's worldview.
0: And also demonstrates... That everyone around Camille knows that he has this, frankly, totally unreasonable hope. And they're not really trying to talk him out of it. I mean, Quattro's statement is sort of a gentle, you should be more guarded. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have sort of gently told him, you should be more guarded.
1: <laughs> Requa told him that, but she was not being gentle.
0: But not specific to this relationship. Right. Yeah. I mean, people with whom he still has some semblance of a good relationship.
1: The line that Fa has at the very end of the episode about that, where she's like, oh, thank God that woman is gone.
0: Well, because I think Fa knew, just like everybody else knew, it had to go bad eventually. And at least now it's over.
1: Yeah. Camille takes it hard, though it's clearly not just the Rosamia thing that is causing him to have that breakdown at the very end of the episode. It's the Cumulative trauma, that psychic suffering he experienced when the colony was gassed, combined with Rosamia's betrayal.
0: It is interesting to me that in contrast with so many other moments when Camille behaves in ways that other people don't agree with, that this is handled so gently. Everyone basically goes along with it, all of them fairly certain that Camille's going to wind up heartbroken in the (laughs) end, and maybe they think that's lesson enough. Hmm. I mean, Fa does her usual Fa thing, but Fa's point is never, this young woman is almost certainly a spy. Fa just does the jealous lover thing.
1: Yeah. I wonder how much of it comes down to Camille is at this point still fulfilling all of his duties. He's still doing what he needs to do for everybody else. And so they can't really say very much about him developing this attachment to this girl
0: it's also so obvious when the doctor is lying (laughs) (laughs) and Camille just goes with it because it's what he wants to hear
1: well Camille doesn't see what we see which is the doctor's expression changing as soon as Camille leaves
0: yeah but the doctor says to him you'd better trust me your state of mind is way more important than anything (laughs) I'm doing right now
1: you think the doctor was just lying to him to keep Camille in fighting shape yes You think they would do that? Just lie to Camille in order to keep making use of him? That seems so callous.
0: You're not waiting for a response, are you?
1: (laughs) Not really. But this is the one that breaks Camille.
0: Camille has been broken many times.
1: (laughs) He is a very good broken boy.
0: Uh, Unless he goes semi-catatonic a la Amaro. I'm not sure I would call this one broken-broken.
1: But that berserker rage he goes into towards the end, Camille has come around to fighting and even to killing when it's necessary. Though, as recently as Dakar, we saw that when it could be avoided, Camille really wanted to avoid killing people. And yet here, he intends to kill them. He wants to kill them.
0: It feels different when it's these Titans pilots are threatening an entire colony full of civilians, they're going to poison gas all these people.
1: But they already have. At this point, it's revenge.
0: Which, again, is different from the scenario where he was trying not to kill Titans who were trying to stop them from broadcasting. You know, that's that's pretty small potatoes compared to, oh, you just killed probably hundreds of thousands of people.
1: But you don't find Camille's like turn towards the murderous here to be a pretty stark departure from his previous behavior?
0: I just think it's been more gradual than you make it sound. I thought perhaps you were referring to the deeply ominous closing line of narration. This marks the beginning of the next tragedy.
1: I would never allude to what that might be. That would be a spoiler.
0: I know you can't tell me anything, but the mind certainly (laughs) finds itself considering, oh, how might this lead to some new... Tragic moment for Camille and the world.
1: How indeed.
0: Camille's not even the most interesting person in this episode. The most interesting person in this episode is obviously rekowa
1: rekowa who can't take responsibility for oh, anything she does.
0: Exactly. Oh, but I find that very interesting. Oh, sure. What only occurred to me as we were prepping for this talkback is that her... Total abdication of personal responsibility, her constant desire for someone to save her, is actually part and parcel to all of her previous behavior. Like, this is not actually a surprise. She has always been like this. She constantly wants someone to save her from herself. And when they don't, it's everyone else's fault. (laughs) You were
1: too slow to arrive. You didn't stop me in time. Yeah, I think that's right.
0: You don't love me, and therefore I'm unhappy.
1: I am reminded about what Edward said in our previous episode about how Rekowa's story and her tragedy are really about the unknowability of a person to themselves and how for Urekoa she is externalizing all of her problems, as you said.
0: Yeah, she tries to talk her way out of this mission. I'm sure there's something else I could do that would be useful for the Titans, but the point of sending her is not her suitability, it's a way to enmesh her in the Titans, it's a way to make it harder for her to leave. Because once she's done this thing, who would forgive her? (laughs) Who would want her to be part of their group after she has done this monstrous thing? And slowly breaking down her own barriers, her own attempts at refusal.
1: Yeah, after having done this, how could she refuse any order?
0: And although she's not buying it yet, beginning to try to inculcate in her this idea that, ah, we are very sad about this horrible violence that we do. We, in fact, do it because we want peace to come as soon as possible. We're not violent people.
1: This is the same line that Jared used when he was organizing the last poison gas attack, the one that the Argama was able to stop.
0: However... At a couple of points in this episode, Rekua brings up Sirocco again. As after her meeting with Basque and getting punched in the face and accepting the mission and so on, when she's leaning against the wall outside the office, she says, does Sirocco really have to test me like this? Right. Why is he putting me through this?
1: Look, the exact power structure of the Titans is never Made totally clear, but it does seem like if Soroko had really wanted to, he probably could have kept Rekua with him on the Jupitress. Maybe Basque and Hyman wouldn't have liked it, but he probably could have done it. So for Soroko to leave Rekua here, he is testing her, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say he is doing to her what Basque is doing to her. After this mission, she cannot leave the Titans. She cannot leave Sirocco's, I'm not going to call it a harem, but Seraglio.
0: Posse. Crew. Gang.
1: None of these are quite right.
0: (laughs) And even in the middle of the combat, it's still, for her, all about Sirocco. She yells at Camille, if you're this slow, you will never (laughs) defeat Sirocco. Because for her, it's never actually been about the Titans. The Titans... Part of this is incidental.
1: This also goes to show that Sirocco is still constantly present in her mind. She's always thinking about him.
0: She goes from sweaty and quaking and nervous before the gas attack. And, you know, crying and sad and full of heavy emotions in the episode before to in this episode seeming pretty comfortable with the idea of killing Camille if she could manage it.
1: I think what we were theorizing would happen did happen. It was a pretty stark turn in this episode, but ordering the gas attack, letting it happen, that hardened her. That turned her.
0: Did you notice the only one of them she's afraid of is Char? When Char arrives, she is noticeably frightened.
1: But not once they start fighting. Once they start fighting and he is unable to defeat her, that's when she... Has that line about, I am the one who is destined to defeat you, Shar. which is pretty impressive for someone who not that long ago was describing herself as not a very good pilot.
0: She certainly does all right here. I have a, a point of speculation that I hope is true. Uh, initially, there's that alarm system around the colony, but it takes the colony a while to launch its own defenses and... We have seen several colonies not have much in the way of their own defenses. And so my initial thought was like, why have the security system at all (laughs) if you're not going to launch something? However, we have seen that colonies have uh, shelters. And so conceivably, when the alarms sound, people could move to shelter. Those shelters would need to be airtight and have their own air supply. But it would make sense for them to have had that If their main purpose is in case of a breach of the colony and loss of oxygen, we know that a lot of people did die. I can hope that a lot of them made it to shelter.
1: Well, I won't speak to your speculation, but I will observe that at the end of the episode, those two pilots that Camille slaughters, and I really do think that's a pretty extreme turn for him. And even if you disagree with me, I maintain that. But... Those two hizaks are flying around in the colony shooting. We don't know what they're shooting, but they're not shooting at Camille. They're shooting at the civilian infrastructure of the colony. And the only reason for them to be doing that, that I can think of, is if there were shelters and they were targeting the shelters.
0: Or other useful infrastructure to further punish the colony.
1: Right. Although if the colony's entire population had already been wiped out, it seems sort of Pointless. When Camille enters the colony with Rosamia there at the end, he's confronted again for like the millionth time, because this is what it always comes back to for Camille, but he's confronted by the loss of innocence. It's not a coincidence that the one dead colonist we see is a small child, and that Rosamia in this moment is herself still in that child persona. And so Camille, first, he sees the Physical, literal death of a child. And then when Rosamia turns on him, the loss of this pseudo childlike, falsely innocent, but to him still uh, innocent person. I've talked before, there's a lot of evidence in what Camille has said about his own life and what we know about his parents that Camille's childhood was probably uh, very traumatic. He was probably quite abusive. He's talked about Having memory issues, he probably doesn't remember a lot of his childhood. So for him, this idea of the loss of childhood, the loss of innocence, is very much core to his personality. And I wonder if he sees himself in Rosamia, in The Child Here, uh, or going way back to like episode 7 when they went to the other colony that had been gassed, Colony 30, and we had a scene of him uh, with a mother and child... And him moving the mother's arm so that she was embracing the child.
0: He has that line at the very beginning of the episode where Fa is going with him to some kind of meeting and he's wondering who's watching Rosamia. Shintan and Kum are watching her. The kids are watching her. <laughs> like, oh, you're having some children watch the other child? But everything about this show has been, you know, kids in weird situations and impossible positions
1: kids being asked to do way way more than should ever be expected of them and that's kids from kum who i think is the youngest up to camille we can include reco in that too <laughs> i think it's important to note though while Rekkoa is very frustrating uh she is a well-realized character
0: Oh, she's there's a reason I said she was the most interesting character this episode.
1: Like she's very unlikable, but she is a fantastically created character.
0: Absolutely.
1: I'm glad you brought up that scene at the beginning with Fa and Camille because I did want to talk about Fa here and actually a little bit about Shinta and Kum too. Let's do them in the opposite order. <laughs> Shinta and Kum are really a study in contrast to the three orphans from First Gundam. We've now had the opportunity to get to know Shinta and Kuma a little bit. They've had a couple of episodes in which they've been quite active and we've gotten to see their personalities. Uh, they have, I don't think, ever once been helpful.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, they're very naughty. They yes. are naughty children.
1: Everything they do is inconvenient for the crew. Totally the opposite of Kika and Lets, who were frequently bumbling and comic relief characters, but always trying to help. Everything they did was about trying to help. They were the cleaning crew. They delivered food. They were the firefighting crew for the white base.
0: They sicked Haro on uh, prisoners atten- attempting to escape.
1: Exactly. Shinta and Coom, on the other hand, helped a, not quite a prisoner, but you know what I mean, helped Rosamia escape. They didn't realize that they were doing something bad, but when it's so universal in their behavior. And
0: climbing into a mobile suit.
1: Well, that time they ran away by hiding in Fah's shower.
0: Yep. No. Well, uh,
1: that did inadvertently <laughs> save the whole Argama from being blown up.
0: Also, not as bad as the time <laughs> the, the other three ran away. Even if it did lead <laughs> to them saving the day, they ran away in Chabro. <laughs> <laughs> that was a much bigger deal. And also they defused some bombs. I, it was. It was a lot.
1: They just wanted to help. But now there's sometimes caretaker Fa. The two things in this episode about Fa that are really interesting to me are that first scene with Camille where she's quite explicitly rejecting the expectation that she will take care of the children. Everybody has been putting it on her, but she's just like, nope, they'll take care of themselves. Not my job. I got a meeting to go to. And then the other thing is Fa piloting during the battle. And it's very matter of fact. There's no angst about whether she'll get into the mobile suit or not. There's
0: no overly dramatic hand-wringing about her being a pilot at all.
1: There's no obligatory scene of her methos getting blown up. She isn't at any point depicted as being particularly stressed by the battle. We do see her get that, like, new-type moment when Camille is feeling the horror of the gas attack. Fa can feel it, too. So you will not be surprised to learn that this episode was written by Suzuki. <laughs> who of the two writers uh, treats Fa being a pilot as very matter of fact. And also, I think it's very interesting, does not view Fa as the obligatory caretaker of the children. Is aware that everybody else puts that on her. But nonetheless, her version of Fa, Suzuki's version of Fa, does not accept that responsibility 100%.
0: And it's not as though she's foisted it on another woman on the crew either. She's left them with the doctor, who, while he doesn't seem terribly busy (laughs) or to have a whole lot to do, that is a position of respect. He is older than her. For her to just sort of leave the kids with him is pretty uh, (laughs) gutsy.
1: (laughs) He is not equal to the task.
0: No, he's not. (laughs) He doesn't seem to mind terribly, but (laughs) he's not handling it well. We are pleased to welcome back Dr. Shar of Dr. Charmander Gaming. Hi, guys.
1: Hello, Doctor.
0: Hope you're all good. This week, we will be talking about Rosamia Badam.
1: For once, we don't have a sad boy for you to talk about.
0: We have a sad girl in space. Is she sad?
4: I can't tell. She seems
1: pretty happy <laughs> a lot of the time.
4: She seems a little bit all over the place.
1: And we'll probably end up talking about sad boy Camille after all anyway, because how can we not?
4: Yep. Yeah, you had me watch 39, 40, and 41.
1: So these are By the Lake, Activation of Grips, and Awakening. This is the introduction of Rosamia through to the reawakening of her personality, her adult personality, and her leaving the Argama to rejoin the Titans.
4: Right. Right. That is the names of the ships and alliances. <laughs>
1: now, when I asked Dr. Char to watch these episodes, I didn't actually tell her which character we wanted her to analyze. I just sort of said she would figure it out. <laughs> it did not take you very long to figure out who we wanted to talk about, did it?
4: Nope. Um, some other strange haired human themselves into Sad Boy, and I was like, something is wrong with you. <laughs> that is it.
1: So at what point in that first episode you were watching, did you figure out that something was seriously wrong with Rosamia?
4: Um, Ros- Rosami? That's my first introduction to her, so she sees Rosami to me.
1: All right, let's call her Rosami.
4: So I just couldn't get a sense of why she was on that I don't know what to call it. Rail car, which, again, seems like an unsafe way to travel, but that's different. Um, unrelated. She she just inserted herself and had no social norm situations, which I'm pretty sure is like a big thing in Japanese culture, like personal space and inserting yourself into other people's family systems.
1: Right. So when she meets up with them at the cart um the like horse-drawn cart and she yes. immediately goes right into Camille's like personal space bubble mm-hmm. and latches onto him. That's the point mm-hmm. at which it became obvious that something was seriously wrong.
4: Yeah. I was just like, okay, that's not a thing people do. Um especially because our introduction to her is like really ambiguous. She looks yeah. like she knows what she's doing. She's like, mm-hmm. I'm gonna open up my computer and do a thing and I'm expecting her to, you know, pull up her her screenplay um, on the public transit, but she follows them, and we don't actually know why she
0: was there to begin with. It gets hinted at earlier in the episode, but if you didn't already know her name, you wouldn't have recognized it. Two of the big bosses of the Titans, uh, Basque and Hymen, yes, that's his name. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Are talking about the fact that they've sent her down to the colony to do something. something. It's sort of, a, they don't say what it is. They just mention that she is the one that they've sent and what a good girl she is. What the? <laughs> so
1: oh, she's right. on some kind of mission. They trust her to do this mission.
0: Does she know the mission? Possibly not. That's a not. good question. That is, yeah, that's a question. <laughs> I'm gonna put
4: a toddler in a war zone and hope they know what they're doing.
1: Well, she doesn't seem to be a toddler when she arrives.
4: I don't know, that's the thing, is that I didn't see her do anything that would tell me that she knew what she was doing. I had several hypotheses about like why she is this way and I have all of them written down. And all we see are her open up a thing, a computer thing, and put a card in. And I was like, that's it. That just tells
0: me that your procedural memory's intact, that you know how to work electronics. She does read a sign. She reads the sign for one of the stations that they pass and says the name out loud. She's like, Lucerne. Ah. Let's
1: pause for a second and actually talk about procedural memory, because I thought that was something that was really interesting following Rosami through these three episodes is, you know, it's always a little unclear how with it she is. Between mm. her sort of asides to herself when her voice kind of changes and the way she interacts with other people, especially Camille. But then when it comes to actually doing tasks, like, for instance, in the third episode that you watched where she hotwires a mobile suit and then pilots <laughs> it and then blows up other mobile suits and also pilots super effectively, like dodging out of the way at the last second, even against a highly trained opponent like Char.
4: yeah. No, definitely.
1: That all falls under what you would call procedural memory, it sounds like.
4: Definitely. I mean, procedural memory is just your ability to do processes. That means like walking, talking, using your computer or your phone. Or your mobile suit. Uh, Or your mobile suit. (laughs) Um, It's actually one of the last things to go if at any point, if you have like head trauma, emotional trauma, anything like that.
1: So this is actually very realistic that a person could be so erratic, lose so much of their sense of self, uh, and yet still retain all of those abilities.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely um, a bunch of studies that have been done on retrograde amnesia. So that's the inability to make new memories, but people who learn how to Um, do a task or a puzzle or play the piano. They're able to do that repetitively even though you have someone walking into the room like their significant others and they'll greet them every day the same way. It's like I missed you and you're like I was out of the room for 10 seconds but it's great that you're this positive. So there are people that can do that and that makes sense but her tone of how she does it tells me like she's like oh she opened what did she do she hot wires it and she's like oh i know this one like i think the way she says it is really childlike mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: so this this might not be like a skill set to her this might still be a game mm-hmm. and i'm like you're not there yet but yeah that's definitely one of the last things to go but it definitely doesn't help like what my hypotheses are for what happened to her or how we got here
1: Does it make sense that she would not just retain those abilities, but also have the memory of that capability that she would remember? Oh, yeah, I can pilot mobile suits.
4: Oh, definitely. That's (laughs) semi-realistic. Also, ignoring the whole psychic connection with all the people that die, a la Force
0: style. But yeah. I don't know if we've talked about this with you before, but uh, Rosami, like four. They call them cyber new types. And the implication is that some procedures have been done to them to make them more psychic or psychic at all. It's sort of unclear whether they start out a little bit psychic and this makes them more so or whether they start out not actually psychic at all. And this brings it out of them. Um, Why are all the super cyber new types women?
1: That's a good question.
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) We know from four that some of what they do to them messes with their memory. Mm.
1: Yeah, Four was like an adult person. She had the adult person, persona, personality, but she didn't have any memories from before.
4: Did she have these, like, regression
0: swings, too? No.
1: She did sort of have multiple personalities, but nothing like regression.
0: All right, cool. Just, like, more cheery or more aggressive. Okay,
1: and each personality had different memories.
0: Oh, man.
1: But you're not here to talk about Four.
0: Right.
4: No, I'm just sad because you're gonna make me confront a huge um, controversy in all of mental health. Oh.
1: (laughs) That sounds exciting.
4: (laughs) Do tell. No, No. Um, because you're suggesting that Four has dissociative identity disorder to a degree, and- Rosemi has something similar. Um, where it's, It sounds like two people, two personalities, this child and Rosemi Abidam, um murder lady. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> the child also does a murder.
0: The child does a murder?
1: It's the murder lady and the murder baby.
0: <laughs> I like it. So what's controversial about...
4: Well, people don't believe that dissociative identity disorder exists. Okay. You know, that's the whole thing. It's not my specialty, nor do I want it to be, nor do I want to try. But I'm just putting it out there that maybe it's a framework that we could work under. But, you know, it's it's been popularized by media because it sounds interesting. You know, mm-hmm. you, want, you want different personalities to come out and prove that they're real. And I've seen cases where, you know, when they've been resolved, they will all say goodbye to one another. There's a nice documentary about it. And then there's, you know, cases where they're using it clearly for um, marketing purposes. Like, I think there's a YouTube channel where this woman has her The different personalities are called alters, and she has the alters come out every now and then and do different kinds of art. And I'm like, that's a little weird. But anyway, yeah, it depends. It depends on the person and your background. And I'm I'm not discrediting or saying that it's a thing or not a thing.
1: Well, I think it's fairly safe to say that the people writing and making Zeta Gundam thought it was a thing, or at least thought it was interesting enough to go with it.
4: It was a thing in the 80s, which I think i in the right time period. Yes, Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was a huge thing in the 80s.
1: Oh, how interesting.
4: Yes, where we get all of our soap opera style stuff. But yeah,
0: perfectly plausible that she could have all her procedural memories and also be murder baby and murder lady. You said you had a couple of different sort of theories about how Rosamia could end up the way that she has wound up. Yes.
4: So... I'm going to go through this in my model, biopsychosocial model. I can post that for y'all afterwards. Biologically, you know, I've gone over the several different ways that you can, like, concussively or mm, neuronal damage sort of ways that you lose memories, the low gravity, the impact, all those other head injury type things. But they would primarily lose short-term memory. And I don't really see that happening here.
1: She does seem to be able to form new short-term memories during these episodes.
4: Yeah. And actually recovery of memories through a traumatic brain injury hasn't been seen as possible just because the structures are damaged. So people have gone undergone hypnosis and other methods of memory recovery. And if it's traumatic brain injury, that's not going to win. But a lot of things when we go through, you know, emotional trauma, it's all state-dependent learning. So that's the learning of things in certain contexts.
1: When you're talking about state-dependent learning, this is what is the basis of the advice that some people give of like, make your study environment as much as possible like the testing environment, or uh, a little more uh, extreme, study drunk, test drunk.
4: Yes, that sort of thing. So if memories are developed in particular states, so we're talking about mood states, different arousal states, drug-induced states, Um, And these are generally not accessible during normal consciousness. And the hardest to get at memories are those developed during fear states, which I imagine is probably Mm. what's happening.
1: Yeah, we do know that she has some pretty extreme uh, fear-based responses and that that was connected a little bit to her mental instability the first time we saw her. She has this recurring nightmare about the sky falling.
4: Oh, is that where that came from?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's not ever explicitly stated, but we think that's probably connected to when one of the colonies was dropped on the Earth during the previous war.
4: Ah, so the last way you can form and lose identities, I'm sure that some people have seen Breaking Bad and his attempt to do this, is the dissociative fugue. Um, So that means that you can't remember details of your life and you must form a new identity, because in all the other states of amnesia, you do remember who you are, you retain your personality, and you have some form of your identity. Dissociative Fugue, um, you know, the best example is a young kid who got passed over for a promotion that he was set on, and then he disappeared and started a new life 600 miles away as a short order cook, and did not recognize anyone of his family. Whoa. I know, right? Um, these were actually more common during periods of natural disaster and war.
3: Hmm.
4: <laughs>
1: so a dissociative fugue would be brought on by some sort of extreme stress?
4: Mm-hmm. More likely if you were forced to act against your own ideals.
1: Hmm. <laughs>
0: Does that sound like anyone in the show?
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was particularly struck by what you mentioned about fear. Mm-hmm. Because one of the moments where we see her start to remember what she's supposed to be doing here is when she hears the alarm that tells the ship that the mobile suits are launching. Mm. And she says, I hate that sound. Oh, Wait, I fly a mobile suit. like. <laughs> Wait, I'm so I'm supposed to be doing something. I'm supposed
1: to be fighting. I need to fight.
0: There's something with the Zeta and like she starts to remember when she hears that Klaxon. Ugh. When she comes all the way out of it, they're in this colony. She has just seen a dead child and has been trying to wake them up as if they're sleeping.
1: Oh my gosh. What? The dead child looks like the lost younger brother from the photograph. Oh really? I'm pretty sure.
4: Brown hair. Are you sure that photograph wasn't planted? I was like, it's weird.
1: <laughs> I mean, we assume the photograph was planted, but she clearly also like has that memory. If the memory was implanted. Hey, can memories be implanted?
4: Absolutely. All right. <laughs> so. <laughs> Not like in the way that you're thinking. Like in the way you misremember things. There's a researcher who looked at uh, eyewitness testimony And just the way that events are presented like a neutral way is like recall the car crash and you're like the person flew out of the front and there was glass everywhere and there was a broken fender. And then like the really leading way that you can say is like, where are you standing among the pieces of the glass when you saw the the car accident? And they're like, yes, I remember all the glass everywhere. And it was blood. (laughs) And he's like that. But it's like a fender bender. Nothing would have happened. So like that's that's what I'm talking about. Not like you had a whole family. (laughs) Don't you remember?
1: Would it be easier to implant a more complicated memory, like, for instance, you had this whole family, if that person were, say, in a dissociative fugue Mm. or undergoing some extreme stress or drugged or hypnotized?
4: As someone who doesn't work with dissociative <laughs> fugue often, but I imagine it would be easier for someone to do that. Like, even the name, like, I just, I like the name is Rosami. It's just like this fractured, I kind of know who I am,
0: but this is easier.
1: I mean, that was probably what they called her when she was a little child.
0: Was she thrown in a tube? Not to our knowledge, she was probably a war orphan. Alrighty. It's very likely... That she did have siblings and they did die. Uh, We don't think Camille was one of them. No.
1: But it would be pretty easy to say to a war orphan who had had two siblings and lost one of them, oh, your older sibling was Camille Badon.
4: If she did have two siblings, you could easily stick the names Camille and
0: Child X on them. Yes. But uh, coming back to the original reason we brought this up, that it's these sort of horrifying and scary situations that seem to bring her back to her state of, oh, I'm supposed to be trying to kill Camille.
1: Well, and it's specifically the memory of the sky falling and things that remind her of that that bring her back into uh, Murder Lady.
4: <laughs> but the interesting thing is that like, no matter what, like Murder Lady or Murder Baby, uh, she, she knows that it's there's like, there's a Camille piece to it. She's like, I either love you or I need to murder you, or maybe I need to murder you with love. I don't know.
1: <laughs> and she does have some memory of there being something she needs to do, even though she can't remember what it was.
0: She was definitely briefed at some point that Camille Bidon was an AUG pilot who pilots the Zeta Gundam and that she needed to kill him. I think it's pretty clear that that's part of her brief, that that's part of what she's been told as a soldier. Hmm.
4: And his name is Badan. I don't know why I didn't know this. Can Leo's last name is Badan? Yes. And so is Rosamia. Hers is Badam. Oh, okay. But they are similar.
1: Yeah, it's similar enough that it's weird.
4: It's similar enough to get a tiny child to be like, oh, that sounds right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cool. In a sad way. I think that it would definitely be easy to implant those. There is clearly an object in her mind. Whether or not object is good or bad depends on the context or who's talking. And that would be easy to create a false relationship around whoever it is.
1: And when you say an object, you mean Camille. Camille is the object. Or Camille and the Zeta Gundam.
4: Camille, Zeta Gundam, that photo, um, and... The object relation. Yeah. That.
1: There's something I'm curious about, which is whether or not she could have been uh, programmed to unknowingly take certain actions without knowing why she's doing them or having innocent uh, reasons for doing them. And the one I'm thinking of specifically is how totally resistant she is to medical examination.
4: Oh, we didn't just chalk that up to an assumed sexual trauma. We say we're thinking that, that she's programmed to stay away from it because they'd find evidence of it, of her
0: cyber new <laughs> I completely chalked it up to the trauma of, I didn't assume it was a sexual trauma. I assumed it was the trauma of being made into a cyber new type and being experimented on and likely given all kinds of drugs and tests and Lord knows what else.
1: Well, and we know they found drugs like in her cells when they were examining her, so... Definitely drugged. Probably other stuff. Right. Oh, at one point when she first shows up many episodes back, can't believe I forgot this, uh, she mentions that uh, her lungs have been enhanced so that she can breathe normally at high altitudes. Oh. So, like, there's a lot of stuff going on with her body.
4: That would mess you up at normal altitudes. But also
0: we're in space. What is altitude? (laughs) Yeah, I chalked it up to... A fear that she maybe keeps under control when she's an adult because it's sort of part of her job, mm-hmm. her, her weird situation in which she finds herself. But from a child's perspective and without that adult emotional control, it's just like, no, the doctor is scary. The doctor is going to hurt me. I do not want to be anywhere near the doctor. <laughs> Bad doctor.
4: Um,
1: but it is the doctor who discovers evidence that she is not what she seems.
4: It was just funny because they're saying that it's a physical. And like one of the things I've had to do lately is sit on rotations for like 25 physicals. And I'm like, you would not find any cellular data on a physical. Uh, so
1: It's a future physical, Char. They've got future technology.
4: Fine. Uh,
1: <laughs> also, there's no way it was just a physical because he had clearly been instructed to look for evidence that she was like a yeah biomedically enhanced cyber new type.
4: Yeah, like you said, the future. Maybe he scanned it off of her. I don't know. Not to completely dismantle it i was like what would be in your cells long enough that's drug that isn't metabolized like way along the way anyway i think that nina's kind of right where you're like if if she was enhanced in this way i'm sure it wasn't in a fun way (laughs) so you have that like basic fear instinct of course that you're like please Mm -hmm. don't touch my soft underbelly and I think that it could be. I think it could be one of those things that she's kind of instructed to. Do. The thing is that, like, I don't, I don't know what war we're emulating, but, like, that whole time of, like, brainwashed KGB kind of comes to mind where I'm, mm-hmm. like,
1: mm-hmm. the
4: really hard thing to get someone to do, to hypnotize them to do a structured task, um, not really an easy thing or not, to my knowledge, a possible thing. If there's not like enough of a fractured foundation like we have with like Camille Kill or Love, I'm like, you have that there and mm-hmm. as opposed to the abstract of like stay away from being discovered, I was like, That's that's a little bit harder. Okay. That's my thought.
1: That was just a happy accident because of all of her drama. <laughs>
4: So other than this wonderful fractured human, do we have any thoughts about how or why the creators decided to juxtapose this like child and Rekoa
0: in the same three episodes? Hmm. So we had a bit of a discussion about this, that while Rekoa acts like an adult, there are certain things about her behavior that are very immature. She is very much looking for someone to sort of save her from herself, someone (laughs) to fix her problems. She left the Argama because she thought a romantic relationship would fix her life, and she didn't have one. (laughs) And then in this last episode, it's like, oh, maybe I won't have to do the horrible thing if someone will just come stop me in time. Right. Right. And then when they don't, she's angry. Like, she didn't have any choice in <laughs> in her decision to gas a colony full of people. And so, yeah, there's this total abdication of responsibility. And that's ultra confusing. That's very immature. <laughs> well,
4: that's ultra confusing for the sake of Rosemy as well, because I'm assuming she's Titans-based, right? hmm So she goes down to a decimated colony that was... Destroyed by the Titans, holds a child that was killed by the Titans, and decides, oh, right, I'm part of the Titans, and enacts her job? Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Throw table. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Titans have this whole thing of, their whole line is, we don't want to do horrible things. We're trying to end the war as quickly as possible. And that it's AU who started it, and so...
1: If you would just stop resisting, we would stop committing atrocities.
0: <laughs> uh, okay.
1: I do think both uh, Rekua and Rosamia are um, women that Camille really wants to save and can't.
4: Has he ever been? Has he ever been successful in saving a human?
0: Not in the way that he wants.
1: He has saved people's physical bodies on occasion. But what he has never been (laughs) able to do is save someone from themselves. He has never been able to uh, save someone who is like going down a dark path.
0: Or save someone from the effects of war. Like he can't protect anybody from being touched by the war. But the war is everywhere. Exactly.
1: And this episode really forces Camille to confront that like he couldn't save the colony. He can't save Rekoa. He can't save Rosamia. He can't save anybody, and that's why he has that huge breakdown at the end.
4: Oh, okay, I was like, that was an extreme reaction to like a girl you met. <laughs> oh, so if we're if if that's the context, I'm like, oh, okay, that ma- that makes more sense.
0: Well, and she had sort of begun to be symbolic of like childhood and innocence as abstract concepts for him. And so when he's like trying to protect her, he's trying to protect some kind of innocence and this whole wartime atmosphere
4: despite like walking in and loving seeing her topless (sighs) i thought he was trying not to ogle yeah
1: (laughs) and the second time it happened it was so like it felt so non-sexual
4: Yes, I mean, it's not sexual, but it's also, like, ridiculous because she's forcing him to eat something. And I'm like, how is that not sexual? I mean, in
0: an abstract Freudian way.
1: Well, it's not sexual because she's a child, I guess.
0: And because she's supposedly his sister.
1: Yeah. The two of them have sort of agreed to behave as though she is his sister. (laughs) Without ever discussing it.
4: Ah, Okay.
1: (laughs) You know, it occurs to me, um, thinking about it now, that for Camille, both Rosamia and Recoa, and also Four and Sarah, who's another character you don't need to worry about. Um, <laughs>
4: okay, if you say so.
1: He goes through this succession of uh, women who he desperately wants to protect their innocence. But actually, none of them are innocent. He is projecting <laughs> the idea of innocence onto them because he desperately wants it to be true. Um, but even Rosamia, Rosami, who appears to be a child, is actually a murder baby uh, and <laughs> contains within her a murder lady. And, like, Rekua, who was on the good side, was his friend, uh, it turns out, has no ideological uh, compunctions at all about joining the Titans and is perfectly capable of completing this, like, mass murder assignment. Uh, and then we don't need to worry about the four and Sarah stuff, but they also were... Uh, not innocent. That's part of why Camille's efforts to protect their innocence were doomed from the start.
4: Right, because they're not. But is there any woman that he doesn't like?
1: Is there any woman he doesn't huh. like? Huh.
0: He gets a bit sassy with Emma. <laughs>
1: He definitely had a crush on her early on, though.
0: She made an effort to distance herself from him. Like, she purposefully was like, I think he's getting a little weird about me. Did she purposely get into a relationship with someone else and was, like, loud about
4: it in front of him? No.
1: She wasn't loud about it.
4: They're not in a relationship. Oh. They might have gone on a date. Are they, like, paragonal relationship? You know, like, mom dad I mean, not quite.
1: Well, but it is uh, mom like leader of the mobile suit forces, and dad like captain of the ship.
4: So she's not a woman to him. (laughs) No, I'm just like he sounds like what they have right now is that Madonna complex. Mm. Until he learns that they're, and I don't know, does he actually learn if like four is evil, or like
0: does he believe that Rosamia is evil? It's interesting. So he probably doesn't think very many people are evil at all. And with four, she winds up being accidentally killed by one of her own side. So he never actually has to like hold any of his own side accountable for her death.
1: And because four does like switch back and forth between personalities, he never has to reckon with the idea that she is actually just one uh, complete individual who is both good and bad. (laughs)
0: It does seem in this episode, though, that he gets to a point where he says to himself, Rekoa is behaving in an unacceptable way. I cannot forgive it or allow her to continue to fight us.
1: Yeah, I'm making some assumptions here, but I do think that very extreme emotional breakdown he has at the end of the episode does come from Grappling with something he is really reluctant to admit, which is that, yeah, they can't be saved. They are, in fact, bad people who need to be stopped. Um, When Nina and I were talking about this episode earlier, we had a bit of a dispute about how extreme and important Camille's uh, killing of the two enemy pilots at the end is. Uh Oh, Um, because he goes, he goes wild and he kills them and it's like a, quite a drawn out scene and it's quite.
4: Exploding. It's violent. It's
1: violent. It's, it's brutal. Um, and it's done in a way where he's like purposefully intentionally killing them. He's not just trying to stop them or destroy their mobile suits. He is trying to kill them, which is a thing that Camille doesn't do. It hasn't yeah. been his way.
4: I think if I remember correctly, like I've seen him kill people with like a gun from like way over here. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. And now he was like, I'm going to use the gun to like stab you in the face.
1: And we've seen him work really hard to avoid killing people in the past, even his enemies. And so for him here to look at them and say, you are evil. You need to die. I'm going to kill you is like pretty extreme for him.
4: But it's still so indirect. I was like, oh, God, Areco is so evil. I need to kill someone else. Right. Uh, (laughs) And then, of course, he does it in a dramatic way that Rosamia can see or Rosami mm -hmm. can see. Mm -hmm. And that I, I feel like that was the waking point was just like, oh, we're in the right setting, a residentially kind of place. Yeah. If we're going with state-dependent learning, I was like, ah, yes, that looks familiar. And you're in a suit, Mm -hmm. and that's familiar. And now you've triggered the thing that's like, do I love or hate Camille? Oh, he's killing Mm -hmm. people. I must hate Camille. And that's probably what woke up Rosamia, as opposed to, like, you know, good brainwashing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All of this was happenstance. I don't know what the Titans are planning, but it's really haphazard.
0: There was one uh, psychological concept I wanted to pick your brain about a little bit. Sure. Uh, we touched on the memory loss aspect, uh, but sort of regression as a concept. Yeah. Which I tend to hear about more with kids. That like kids who experience a trauma will regress mm-hmm. from like childhood to toddlerhood. Kind of. They'll mm-hmm. go back to some of their old. Self soothing behaviors or start wetting the bed again or yep. other th- things that are associated with an earlier time of life.
1: And when I've heard about it with older kids or older people, it's usually limited to like emotional expressions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. You start, you might be 20, but you express yourself emotionally like a teenager.
0: Right. Is regression something that can and does happen to young adults? And is it ever? back to early childhood or is that sort of an extreme uh case that they did for the show
4: I think it's um entirely possible so it's one of the things that can be done um as protective or it can be intentional and you're right like I think we do it every day um not to the extent that you see here but like to the extent that like if I'm having a really bad day you know your parents would take you out for ice cream and it, we have that thought every day where I'm like, today is unbearable. I'm going to have ice cream. Like that's mm. regression in the like most simple way and not mm-hmm. involving no trauma. Um, you see it a lot with people just going back to old habits, like people that I've been sober for a certain amount of years. Like this is the only tool I have. So I regress to this way of self soothing, which is like drinking. And like you talked mm-hmm. about with children, the thumb sucking, the fetal position. We have that, Um, but it can also be done intentionally. And I had to do it one time and it was, it wasn't bad. It was like one of these things that like from context clues, you would kind of get the body to think it's in this, in this safe space. So when you have people who are a little bit dysregulated, like um, I had this person and this isn't disclosing anything at all, it's just like we were drawing on the floor. This is an adult, we were drawing on the floor on a large piece of paper. And that just like called out to a part of her that was safer so that we could talk about those things. So it's those those triggers that you have that told you if you had a secure childhood, that this is the safe spot, I'm okay. Um, so it can be done intentionally. And that's where I did make a note of that. I'm like, she's full up in the fetal position with the mm-hmm. doctor. I'm just like, well, that happens sometimes like Something absolutely terrible must have happened to you related to medical procedures. And if she is a cyber new type, then that's probably what it was. So yeah, regression is absolutely a thing that would happen, especially for someone as fractured as she is. I think the most whole she felt was wholly with another person. So she would regress that far. So that's a thing that happens. Okay. Yeah, I just like the whole candy thing because I was like, ah, Freud is here.
1: <laughs> oh, because of the oral fixation?
4: No, just because she's invaded him physically. <laughs> she's like forcing a candy in his mouth and I was like, ha ha. She's invaded
0: his corpus and now she's a part of him forever. It's really interesting that you use that phrase. <laughs> oh, here we go. Yeah,
1: Yay! you have no idea.
0: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so when new types die, sometimes their spirit seems to like persist in the moment of their death, and they're able to communicate with someone before they kind of dissipate, if we want to call it that. <laughs> oh, good lord! And when four died, she had a whole conversation with Camille, and what one of the things they talked about is that she was going to live on inside him forever forever
1: in fact i believe the name of that episode was forever four
0: and he even references it again later when he's thinking about his own status as a new type and sort of becoming a better new type and that he feels like his personal development is necessary because that's what's going to keep for. Like alive inside him. Uh, he doesn't say the memory of four, he says four. The person.
4: <laughs> uh, well, that's creepy McGee! Okay!
0: <laughs> so he's just full of new types.
4: Oh uh, no, he's like an arc of new types. Uh, <laughs> I suddenly don't like this this whole invading the corpus thing. Just, <laughs> just like just Now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But unlike the arc, Camille does not want uh, matched pairs. Camille only wants lady new types.
0: <laughs> all the single ladies, all the single ladies. <laughs> all the psychic ladies, all
1: the psychic ladies.
0: Oh, God.
1: Having talked through Rosamia's presentation in these episodes, it sounds like, uh, for the most part, this is a pretty plausible depiction of, of how a person who's gone through what she's gone through could behave.
4: Yep, it seems pretty plausible. The part that's hard to believe is just the swing. No matter what personality is relatively reserved, like you'll still have the same interests and you'll still have the same like preferences.
1: So the idea of switching from I love Camille, he's my older brother to I must destroy Camille, that's the most difficult to believe part of it.
4: Yeah, that's the contrived piece of it, but I understand we're in a war show. That's gonna happen.
1: I mean it's a it's a horny space melodrama from the mid-80s.
4: I've noticed that! <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> Next time on episode 2.43, Rosamia Bound, we start the last disc of the Blu-ray, y'all! by covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 42 and what if we all became new types three times faster? Promises you can't keep. A flaw or an asset? Unexpected cats. Selfish behavior. No obvious injuries but still dead. Cool little ear dealies. And Camille never learns. You will see the tears of time.
1: Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, gundampodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, If there are any girls there, then I want to save them! Out your window at passersby. We might not hear you, but you'll be helping to keep all of us safe. The TNN this week includes Gemini, instrumental version by Josh Woodward, and the voice talents of the AUG Broadcasting Channel's UK correspondent, Linny. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. I mean, I'm wearing pants for the first time in like a week, so we're all dressed up. Oh my gosh. Yes, Nina's here too. Hello. I'm I'm so glad that you feel comfortable enough with us to just eat an apple directly into our ears like that.
0: Speaking of games, in uh, a move that has surprised me to no end, Tom is playing Animal Crossing now. I think we're, we're very nice about it. It's not like Dr. Shark <laughs> trying to Explain put you. Explain
1: yourself! <laughs> yeah, probably the meanest thing I do to you is that I keep making you watch Gundam. <laughs> it's Gundam, so it's m- like momminess, but also girlfriend ness, so like mommy girlfriend. Um, Rekowell was the mommy girlfriend he wanted to have. Yeah, what does the um, what does the DSM say about psychics?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't, I don't get it. I love it. I actually don't get it. What's the joke?
0: He has a type. Oh yeah okay
1: now I get it (laughs) Uh, that's good
0: She's hot and also what if he can save her Gosh dang it When she hears that klaxon
1: Good word
0: Great word
4: Oh her name escapes me and I'm going to get kicked in the butt for this
1: well he's completely out of his element whenever it comes to like interacting with another human person in a way that isn't violent
4: (laughs) i won't talk about it um (laughs) um we'll cut all that cut all that um okay In order to fight, you must be close enough to inflict trauma. Fun! Yes!
2: <laughs> you are.
1: I know you're being flippant, but that is uh, so much closer to the actual reason than you can imagine.
4: <laughs> if you're not scar- emotionally scarred for life, you're not close enough.
1: If you're not emotionally scarred, what is even the point of being in Gundam?
0: <laughs> oh god. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> This is a family-friendly podcast. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) My bad.